Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. Hey everyone, I'm Laura Lavoie, and this is Song Cycle the official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything art song. It's history, it's creation, it's performance, and it's ability to tell stories that connect communities. In this episode, I'm talking with J.J. Penna, an extraordinary pianist and vocal coach who is probably one of my favorite people to geek out with when it comes to text and its musical settings. Every moment with JJ feels like it has its own profound importance, but especially so when we talk about the future and evolution of this beloved art form. Hi, JJ. We are so, so happy to have you on the show today. I know that you and I go way, way back, but for those of our many, many listeners who are uh, listening <laughs> to our podcast today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, sure. uh, why you do it, all of that stuff? Sure. Inter- introduce yourself to the good people. Sure. First, um, it's great to be here. And thank you so much for asking me. I was just so thrilled when I got here. Yeah, so you were great. one of the first people that came to mind when this podcast was conceived, I guess. Uh, But you were one of the first people I thought of. And I was like, I have to get JJ on here. He's gonna have some great things to say. And I'm just so, so grateful that you're here. It is, it's such a treat for me. I think that, um, you know, what, what I do could probably be described in many different ways. And that's, that is probably the allure of it, actually. But I, I think that in the simplest way, uh, I'm a music teacher who works in a very, very specific place in the stream, in the larger stream of classical music. And specifically, I talk exclusively to singers. I work exclusively in the classical vocal arts. And um, I talk to singers about the connections between poems and music. I'm a musical assistant to a singer part of the time. The other part of the time, I'm teaching classes where we talk about poems in deliciously nerdy ways. I distinctly (laughs) remember your German vocal lit class, which I've actually, I still have my notes for, and I've been pulling them out uh, as I've been studying for my doctoral exams and they've been very helpful. (laughs) But I just remember that was something I enjoyed so much about our work together that you, more than any other coach I've worked with, took such a deep dive into the poetry um, and into how that intermixed with the music. And it was just, especially as a young person, that was such a gift that you gave to me. I remember like distinctly working with you at Juilliard and I was (laughs) 
to think of when when we would have met for the very very first time like i feel like probably sophomore year i i couldn't like i can remember you coaching a whole slew of schubert songs strauss copeland dickinson i mean i remember all these things we mm-hmm. coached, but i somehow was like what it was the very first thing we worked on i can't even think of what that might have been i'm seeing like probably sophomore songbook type yeah of oh gosh i don't know but i can't even but yeah no it was it was wonderful to know you then and it's wonderful to reconnect now i you know i'm i'm so lucky to teach at these two schools juilliard and new England conservatory which are just so the cream of the crop well yeah you know i mean i i have students i teach students who don't it doesn't take an awful lot of effort to move them around the field so to speak you know i mean they're yeah. They're there, they're engaged, they're engaging, they're challenging, they're interesting, they're themselves, they're emotionally mature, you know what I mean? I feel like I put myself in the challenging category. (laughs) Challenging in in a sense of being remarkable and being really deeply engaged. It's so funny, as I was kind of both mentally and actually preparing for us to talk today, I was thinking about, it's kind of that horrifying moment when you meet like, your parents friends or something and they remember you from when you were a little kid and you have that horrifying moment of like what did I do what did I say how do they remember me (laughs) and as I was getting ready for this I was like oh gosh what did I do back then (laughs) I had sort of that existential dread of oh no it is something you know we're all I think we're all called to do this partly because we have certain sensitivities and perceptions and we're, we're very feelingful as people. I think, yes. you know, I, I think that's part of the reason we gather in these rooms to talk about this. I think it is true that part of that hyper perception to the world that all of us, all of us share as artists, I think it kind of makes us profoundly self-critical. And oh, yes. probably even, I was thinking about this too, like how we, our memories latch on to these moments of trauma is a very big word, but I, I don't mean to use it in a big way, but you know, we, we sort of I know exactly latch on and we rem- remembered it, these moments that were, that we remember as being very harsh. And, you know, typically it's kind of almost like living a negative fantasy because, you know, oftentimes yeah. really one is very, not only forgiving, but, you know, very open and understanding to people in their twenties because <laughs> it's a total dumpster fire, right? <laughs> Yes. Yes. And that's one of those things you think about where, you know, I was exposed to, you know, people like you and just amazing, incredible musicians and teachers. And I was just the dorkiest, derpiest kid. But the thing I was, is... I was there. You, you, won't, you know, I don't know what to say. I, I was right there. I'm a first person source. I know. <laughs> I was right there. It wasn't like that. Didn't go down that way. But, but that's I, absolutely how it feels. And thank you for having grace with me. Um, I appreciate that. From the inside, it feels so. Uh, it, one feels so lost. I think, but it doesn't mean one conveyed that. To, you know, it's interesting. Oh, good. I'm glad yeah. it didn't come across that way. You know, it gives you a lot of time to think about and reflect on the people that you've known and the people that have influenced you. And I know I've said this to you before, but you really come to me as one of those people who had an enormous mm. impact on who I ended up becoming mm. um, and really why I ended up doing as much art song as I have, why I now work for Cincinnati Song Initiative. And it's really because of you and Margot 
um, mm. who really pushed me into that and like that love of poetry and sort of a devotion to that marriage of poetry and music and that there's some a really special connection there. No, thank you so much for that. And also, it, this is what we hope for is that we're training people at that very impressionable stage of life who will then show us the new frontier, you know, and like take us as you are, you know, take us sort of into the 21st century. Well, that's what, we're, that's what we're trying to do, <laughs> kicking and screaming, but we're, right. we're trying to make it happen. <laughs> um, so JJ, since, since you're here and, you know, we're obviously here to talk about primarily art song and your role <laughs> in the broader spectrum of art song. The One of the questions I always ask my guests right off the bat is what is an art song to you? Yeah. And I have to say every single person I've talked to has a different answer. And I kind of flip-flop myself on what that answer is for, for me. And I think it depends on who I talk to. I, I'm perpetually adding little nuggets of my own definition to that. So what to you is an art song? And I guess for our intents and purposes too, how would you differentiate that from other types of classical vocal music? Because you said that, you know, you work exclusively in classical vocal music. So how is art song different from something like opera? You know, yesterday I spent an hour coaching uh, Debussy's Fête Calante 1, and I went immediately into two hours of the most blissful listening experience to a, um, a former student of mine at Juilliard has just this week put out an album of electronica. Her group is called Ball slash Lune, and I, I'm telling everybody who's listening to just like, download it now, don't even I'm going to have to do that. <laughs> um, so I spent two hours, you know, like one does, just this immersive listening experience to my former student, just, you know, just completely wrapped with, with attention and interest and in how somebody puts something like this together. And I don't even want to, like, undermine her by saying it sounds like this, although, I, you know, one wants to do that, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like James Blake, but crossed with uh, Brian Eno. You know, I don't even sure. know. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I, I think that we have to embrace all types of vocalism and vocalizations and all types of vocal beauty and all types of forms that vocal beauty can take. As much as I love the idea that we're getting away from classifications, as much as I love um, my students who struggle against genre, you know, the word genre maybe or the word mm -hmm. style, um, you know, I, I do think that saying electronica or saying art song <laughs> or saying cabaret song allows us to locate ourselves somewhere. It allows sure. us to know where we are. And so I, I think when we say this word art song, which is probably cumbersome, a little bit of a cumbersome term, um, we mean uh, music that responds to a poetic text, music that responds to a freestanding poem, a musical syntax that responds to an already musical linguistic syntax. That's an art yeah. song. I don't, I've never done the research on this. Maybe you have, maybe some of your listeners have, but I, it seems like the word art song becomes exponentially more popular around the time of the great explosion of American musical theater in the 1940s and 50s. And I, I don't know this for a fact, but I would suppose that there had to be a term to separate something that's Samuel Barber and James Agee from something that's Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart. Yeah. You know, because those Stephen Sondheim songs, those Jason Robert Brown songs, those um, Jonathan Larson songs are some of the most sophisticated things ever. Um, Absolutely. That's, that's very definitively a lyric. You know, it's something where the words are written to a certain extent in order to 
be absorbed by the musical structure. Not ne- a song lyric is not necessarily a standalone thing. And I don't think Stephen Sondheim writes poems. You know, I think they're lyrics. No, I, I absolutely agree. But, they're brilliant. Yeah, right. But okay. I, I absolutely agree with you on but that. I think that. I think that when we say art song, we really mean that it's music that is responding to a structure that's already there. Mm-hmm. You know? structure that's already been created. There's a wonderful tension that occurs between the structure of a poem as it exists on the page as a series of lines under pressure with the with the tension that a musical setting brings, you know? And, and, I, and I'm not sure it really matters if Bradley Maldow is setting Rilke or Copeland is setting Dickinson, you know? Mm-hmm. To play devil's advocate, and the only reason I bring this up is I mentioned earlier, I've been studying for my doctoral exams, and this week my my study theme was art song and um, kind of the solo vocal literature in that, in that respect. And I was working on a practice essay comparing the outputs of Debussy and Ravel. And one of the things that has been really challenging to me especially as someone who works for an art song organization and enjoys singing art song a lot, is the difference between someone like Debussy who who really embraced this sort of traditional form of singer and pianist poetry and the music that supports it and supplements it. And then you have someone like Ravel who preferred prose to poetry and said it in a very orchestral way that was very sweeping as opposed to integral to the actual text itself. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And because they're both considered art song, but you have one person who really embraced the marriage of poetry and music so intensely that separated, they really are not they really can't stand alone. Then you have someone on the other hand, Ravel, who wrote this very lush, orchestrated prose music, but they're both considered under the same umbrella. So I'm curious as to what what your thoughts are, especially considering the definition you just gave me. Yeah, you know, I think I would lump prose right under the same category as poetry in this particular conversation. I mean, I think in a different room, in a different conversation, I think creating a distinction between what constitutes prose and what constitutes poetry is probably very fascinating and very interesting. But when I look at the prose, when I when I think about the prose that has been set to music that comes to mind, whether it's the letters of Zelda Fitzgerald or it's Samuel Barber Knoxville, or it's the Ravel that you, you mentioned. I mean, it's such poetic prose in every possible way. I mean, yeah. it's lyric, it's image-based, it's usually follows a certain kind of poetic line, uh, you know, even at the line level. So, you know, maybe, maybe I would edit my own definition and say, you know, a, a construct, you know, some sort of linguistic construct where um, I know some might argue a song lyric is a linguistic construct, but it just feels to me like song lyric is so bound to the music. If someone yeah, strapped me down and asked me the difference between like a couple lines of poetry and a song lyric, it would probably take me about 20 minutes to figure it out. But but you you feel the difference. I mean, that, you know, being being so attuned to the line level What's, what's happening at the line level as one is in poetry versus the uh, cadence of a song lyric that feels mm-hmm. so, so entirely different in terms of how it's scanned typically. I think that the, the question of opera and song is a fascinating one in so many ways, also in terms of voices, right? In terms of mm-hmm. just what we ask a voice to do in terms of exploring extremes in, in one literature and the other literature. But yeah. 
you know, I'm, I'm quite sure that there are arias that are really songs. I mean, whether it's Du mein Holder Abendstern or what is it, City Lights, Volcom. Um, you know, I'm sure that there are songs that happen, that, ha- that come out through the thread of an opera. That yeah. An opera. And I'm, I'm quite sure that there are um, songs that are arias. Like somebody has to Strauss. explain to me why. Well, yeah, or even like Schubert's Auflösung. Like why can't, yes. why can't you... Uh, as a soprano, use that as a German aria, <laughs> um, or Shade and Nui by Bachelet, right? So I do think that there is the one encased in the other, but I, I do think that it's a question of intimacy and intensity. Yep. When we're talking about the difference between song and opera, I'm quite sure that one goes into an opera house with an expectation of hearing a certain type of vocal sound and that that's what has attracted them to come into the opera house and that's what mm-hmm. attra- has attracted them to the genre is yeah. the expectation that someone who sings Tosca sounds a certain way, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I don't mean that in any kind of... I don't even really mean that in a in like a Fach way or I don't, I don't mm-hmm. mean in any kind of pigeonholing way or li- limiting way or reductive way. Whereas I, I think that when somebody comes on stage to sing Debussy's Chanson de Bilitis or Barber's Hermit songs, I'm not sure that even, even though Barber's Hermit songs have been quite indelibly recorded by Leontine Price for whom they were written, I'm not really sure that we come in with an expectation of what they're supposed to sound like from a vocal standpoint. I think that there's certainly... When we talk about songs, when somebody says something like, well, I sing a lot of opera, I'm not as familiar with songs, or I'm not familiar with the song repertoire, something that you typically hear in schools or young mm-hmm. artists, you know, which, which voice do I use type of, type of conversation. I don't think that um, you're going to find where the bones are buried by answering yeah. that question of what voice do I use. But yeah. I do think that these, the question of the, the scale is so different. The, the nature of the address, the nature of the platform, uh, the nature of the character's story. I think all of those things fall under this um, umbrella of intimacy and intensity being something that's explored differently, really. I totally agree. And that's something that I've come to understand in my own definition of art song is that especially as opposed to opera, where opera, you go in and you expect to be told a story, represented to, whereas an art song, you are given an invitation into a world that you can place your own meaning on. And I actually, I had a, a really interesting conversation with David David Paul on one of our previous episodes about performance precedent. Um, like you said, kind of, you when you go in to see Tosca, you expect a certain thing. Yet you also said that the Hermit songs have been magnificently and untouchably recorded by Leontine Price, but you don't go into a performance of the the Hermit songs expecting Leontine. Whereas if you go into De Rosencavalier, you may expect whoever's singing it to be Renee Fleming as the Marshallin. And so that's something we, he and I had a really interesting conversation about that in terms of characterization, because, you know, you have a lot of, uh, we were talking a lot about Shakespeare, but you have a lot of art song based on Shakespeare's characters and their texts or their songs. And you don't necessarily have the kind of pressure to put a specific characterization on them or a performance character that other people have put on which is very liberating and I think one of the reasons I personally have been so drawn to art song is I don't have other people telling me no you have to do it this way because it's been done that way before so since we're we're here and sort of 
we're talking about art song and I love asking this to all, all of our guests who we have on the show, but what are some of your favorites? What are things that you find that you're coming back to over and right. over again? And I'm sure that like most people, you you go back to things and you discover new things or more mm-hmm. or deeper meaning in things. But what are some of the things that you find that you are always drawn to and you love to go back to over and over again? I can't decide if this is an asset or a detriment, but I at this, <laughs> at this point, there's a certain body of work, like the, a certain number of hours of work that I feel I know on such a deep, intimate level. When a singer is coming to sing it for me, I almost can receive it from a point of emptiness or from a point of just being listening purely intuitively to it, almost as though I forget who wrote it. <laughs> it sounds so weird, but I, you know, there's, there's a certain body of literature that I have explored so much that I feel like my listening experience, and hence I think my pedagogical experience <laughs> as a singer, is very rich and um, dynamic. In a way, it, it's not so much about having favorite composers. It's it's just when, like, when the song cycles of Debussy are in front of me, I, I feel very at home with them. You know, when mm-hmm. Barber's in front of me, I feel very at home with it. When probably, you know, 200 or so of the Schubert songs are in front of me, the Schumann cycles are in front of me, mm-hmm. a certain number of Wolf songs. Somebody sings the Berg Seven early songs for me and I, I, I feel I know how they go. Well, that's not, I mean, I suppose that could be conceived as some kind of arrogance or pretension, but it, I, I really just mean it as though, like, I feel I've embodied that notation to the point where I can listen like that. And so I think at this point, and that's why I'm, I'm not sure actually if it's a positive or negative thing, but at this point, I kind of want to be around the material that I've done that kind of digging in or... Mm-hmm. I'm about to do my first Wai Men in about three weeks. And so, you know, that, that was absolutely- Oh my gosh! Very exciting. But, you know, of course, I mean, I learned that piece from scratch. Like, I call her a student. She's not really just a doctoral student. But I guess you still say student. That sounds weird. But <laughs> the young artist who's, who's singing it did, you know, just cracked the score and started from square one. Mm-hmm. But still, I, there's a deepening there that I'm not sure- I would ever feel with something like L'Elysier d'Amore. Yes. And it doesn't help that I know 10 people who know L'Elysier d'Amore as well as I know the Debussy Baudelaire songs. And so, you know, there's just something in a person that wants to be excavating at kind of at the deepest part of the field. So I kind of, you know, I struggle against a little bit the mentality that all artists have valuable things to say to all other artists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like everybody has something interesting to say about everything. I think Martin Katz has something interesting to say about everything. I think Margot Garrett has something interesting to say about everything. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I really think that that, it's interesting, I, I was having this conversation with a colleague that um, who, who had a very similar lineage to the lineage I had of mm-hmm. Martin and studying with Margot. And, you know, I said, like, do you ever think about the fact that, like, at a very impressionable time in our lives, we had these two teachers who are absolutely effective all the time. All the time. Not even 99.9% of the time. 100%. 100% Always. Of the time. You don't say like, well, you know, except that one coaching I had, you know, it's 100% of the time. And, you know, the kind of um, intimidation factor in a way of of that you know or, or yes. just knowing that knowing that that's there is really incredibly humbling 
and it kind of I think that's one of the reasons why it would make someone like me want to sort of live where I'm the most familiar I think mm -hmm. you know as opposed to you know somebody saying oh you know bring me everything bring me mm -hmm. you know, bring me anything as mm -hmm. you're here you know yeah. so I think it's sort of less about do I have favorite things and more those are my favorite things and my favorite things sure. are the things that I I have really dug into it's funny that you should say that because my husband and I had a very funny conversation the other day. I think we were talking about grocery shopping or something where he's like, you know, we are adults. And if we don't like something, we don't have to get it, you know? <laughs> and that's one of the, the beautiful things that I've realized about, I guess, growing up and maturing as a musician. And I'm sure, you know, someone is even as seasoned as yourself, you still have those moments of like maturity and um, growing into your artistry. And I feel like the work for us is never over. But it was one of those things where I realized I don't have to do everything. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be great at everything. Right. And that opened up a lot of freedom for me to invest in the music that was really really important to me. Mm -hmm. And that was something I was really able to do during my doctorate is because in my doctoral recitals, I wasn't tied down to you have to have a French set, you have to have a German set, you you know, all these these stipulations, you know, you have to cover 400 years of music history over the course of an hour. And I felt a great liberation in being able to choose the things that were important to me. And those were the things I wanted to work on. Right. And it's a very beautiful thing to look back over a period of time and say, you know, I have spent probably over a thousand hours of my time just on Debussy's Arrière Oublié, right. you know? And that's one of those beautiful things where it's like, of course, I'm going to want to go back to that right. because that's where that's where my time is. That's where my I've buried my treasure. <laughs> and resurrecting those pieces really just feels like putting on your most favorite pair of shoes in the whole right. world yeah. and going for the most beautiful walk. Yeah, and I, I mean, love that. There's nothing like finding out who you were meant to be and living the life that you want to live and d doing what is life-giving. You know, there's no, there's no equal to that, really. You are absolutely right. And so for you, as I said earlier, you are what we would call a seasoned professional. I feel like it's <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> To be fair, we're, we're all still, there is always room for growth. We're all, there's always work to be done. But for you, you know, you've had a lot of great projects and you've had an amazing teaching career. How have those experiences helped you contribute to what we know as the body of art song now, whether, you know, it's through your legacy as a teacher or recordings mm -hmm. that you've done? What are some of the things that you feel mm. um, and by all means, this is this is meant to be a toot your own horn situation. <laughs> um, what are some of those projects that you feel, whether artistically or just by their impact, have been really meaningful to you? You know, for better or worse, I I was kind of b born a very quick sight reader. Mm, so, mm -hmm. um, you know, l learning music has always come rather quickly. I used to play the Ravinia auditions for years in New York. And I used to just love that sensation of just somebody comes in and hands me something. And off you go. And we make music together. I, I used to tell people, I think it was maybe some of like the best playing I did in my entire life. We just did it. There, there mm -hmm. And I, I think that that 
that is something i mean there are a lot, a lot of musical skills that i don't have and a lot of things i struggled with but that that is something i did never struggled with is just kind of like the kind of speed learning or sight reading that mm -hmm. and so it's interesting that when i think back to the the musical experiences i've had that have been the most meaningful they've been the immersive ones a wonderful mezzo-soprano named brenda patterson who now runs victory hall opera in virginia one of the great companies uh in the united states she and i oh maybe 25 years ago now 20 years ago we're at a festival for three weeks together and we rehearsed book of the hanging gardens for three hours a day um for three weeks wow and it was just what a time that's it or i toured with a wonderful canadian soprano named misha burger gosman and we rehearsed a lot i mean mm -hmm. we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed i have a recital partner now eric rieger wonderful tenor and friend and um we dig through the repertoire together, Britain song cycles, Schöne Müllerin, Dichte. I love that. Um, we're working on a, a commissioning project now that's going to take a couple of years. But so I think these any any number of those experiences that have been that have given me the opportunity to just anchor myself in one place and kind of be with a work over a long period of time like those have been very very meaningful almost maybe because so much of what we do has to be so quick you know so, so every everything is not just not just like the speed of life is quick because it's yeah. the century but um you know a singer comes into a coaching and they literally hand a pianist something and the assumption is well you know everything so just uh, <laughs> and tell me what you think of it you know i am thankful that there is something of a certain facility in me that was able to do that kind of you know is able to mm -hmm. kind of catch on quickly to what the score what's on the score etc i think maybe again because of that i've i've so relished the the opportunities i've had to just slow down in a way um and learn learn something over a long period of time my two summers at tanglewood like an enchanted place um, yeah, was exactly like that. I mean, it was coachings with Margot and Alan Smith and Kayo Iwama. I mean, it was, it was like fantastic. Sounds like a dream come true, One honestly. <laughs> and that, you know, that was like that, like the, the repertoire that I performed there was the same way to a certain extent. You know, it was like it had a, it had a, um, a lot of time to mull. That's awesome. I think a lot of people, myself included, are not afforded that opportunity especially when we get asked to sing something or we have to do a recital it's just you pick up that music and you say all right i'm gonna get you done in you know a couple weeks and here we go <laughs> and i think that's why it's so special to be able to resurrect things that that we love and to spend a lot of time with with really great artists to take those deep dives into music that we may not have the opportunity to do otherwise. And I mean, I've, I've experienced this on, on many levels, you know, especially during undergrad, because, you know, I, I got to work with people like you and we got to work so intensely on a lot of, a lot of music that I, I really loved. And I think you really loved too. But what's been so, so special to me in my doctoral studies is I focused a lot of my research on Carol Szymanowski and his uh, 20 children's songs, 20 children's rhymes. It's so funny because it's almost like he's become a member of my family, mm -hmm. you know, because I've spent so much time reading about his life and his output and who he was as a person and where he traveled and who he associated right. with and all this stuff. And you just... And it's the same thing with the people that we work with now. It's like those people that you take those journeys with, it's almost like they become family, which is really special. And we I, don't always have that opportunity. 
I'm not a person who casts a lot of negativity towards the American system, the American mm -hmm. educational system, because I think you have an awful lot of very, very intelligent, well-meaning people who are trying to create curriculum that are progressive and interesting and mm -hmm. challenging. And, I, you know, I, I really don't have a lot of negative things to say about kind of what, what we do in schools in the mm -hmm. United States. But I will say that I think there's a, a real contradiction at the heart of it where we're, we're saying to a young singer, okay, now we want you to be be personal and be yourself, but we also want you to be like everyone else, <laughs> right? We're sort of like, yeah. okay, we, we want you to specialize and we, we want you to really just find out what you're good at. Oh, but by the way, we also want you to be good at everything, <laughs> right? And I don't know, you know, nobody says that outright. Somehow when, when, when you sign on to a school and you get that curriculum guide and you read about your degree requirements, there's some kind of message that gets delivered or maybe misdelivered to the students that is, is uh, it can be suffocating. It's not always suffocating, but it can be suffocating. We believe, I mean, from knowing how truly, truly caring and um, wise the administrations are at both, at both the schools where I teach, for instance, I mean, nobody is really thinking that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's funny though, because on the other side, as someone who has gone through you know, Juilliard and other institutions similar to Juilliard. It's, it's really funny because you do as a student feel a very real level of pressure to adhere to expectations. And that was something I really struggled with during really up until I decided to do my doctorate because I, I thought, you know, I had to follow this very specific path that was prescribed to me from age 17 up until I decided to sort of shed that at age 25, I guess. Yeah. And it was something that was very hard for me, kind of mm -hmm. going back to that idea of being an adult and knowing what you want and pursuing that and being able to pursue who you are. It was very, very hard for me as a person to recognize that and I hope I'm not shooting myself in the foot here for anyone who wants to hire me to sing opera because I will sing opera. I will absolutely do it. But my my heart and soul has always been in the art song repertory and in giving recitals and concerts and things like that. And right. it's something I truly love so much, but it was something that I struggled a lot with during my undergrad because I mm. felt I felt the the itch for that. And it was like, no, I mean, that's great, but you should really focus on being an opera singer. And I was like, ah, I don't well, know. Hope, I mean, hopefully with, with your organization and some others, you know, there will be paths that are as uh, glamorous sounding and as, <laughs> I mean, even just as public, you know, mm -hmm. for a young singer who wants to explore something else or maybe who doesn't yeah. you know, doesn't want that particular path. I mean, I, I almost think it's a it's a result of what the classical vocal industry is in the mm -hmm. United States. And just this is, you know, it's not really there are these what um one of my colleagues called these big ocean liner companies that are really yeah. glamorous but really difficult to steer. And so yep. that's in a way what we're how how we've grown accustomed to talking about it. Yeah, I, it's interesting you mentioned David Paul, who would know so much more than I would about the landscape in the German speaking lands. Mm -hmm. um, I know almost nothing about I mean, I know so little about how music is taught in the German speaking system. I'd be interested to see if because so many different types of careers are possible mm -hmm. in the German speaking lands, mm -hmm. um, if 
singers feel the same way, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and who knows, we might have to get both you and him on a future podcast to discuss that at some point. But but I really, I, I did want to ask you, especially as, as a teacher and as someone who works with young people, very eager, talented, smart, challenging young right. people, are there things that you notice that tend to be overlooked when you are working with said young people? And I say young people as though I am not a young person and I am a young person, but it's one of those things that, you know, I've talked to people like Margot about things like this and um, someone who, who's been in the game for a long time, who is really revered as one of the, the main pioneers of what it is that we do now and has taught such right an amazing body of students. You know, we really look up to people like her and to, to Martin Katz to right. to bestow their knowledge and majesty upon us. Right. But what are what are some things that in your in your experience that you've noticed that students tend to overlook? And I mean it could be like we've discussed, you know, the the importance of slowing down and really taking those deep dives into music. But what are some of those things that, you know, if you I'm sure you have candid relationships with your students, but if yeah. you know you had the opportunity to speak candidly to say, you know, these are the things that I'm noticing and especially because art song is not as widely distributed, shall we say, as opera, you know, things that you're just noticing that are not helping, I guess. Yeah. You know, I, I would start by saying, and I this is going to sound like flattery, and I, I really don't mean it to sound like flattery at all, but I just in a totally objective way, like I teach a lot of students who are in their early 20s, not exclusively in their early 20s, but a lot of students who are in their early 20s. And I really marvel at the amount of savvy that they have, and mm. no generation has had more information coming at them. Mm -hmm. uh, and no, no generation has had to parse out the important from the unimportant uh, in terms of the absolute barrage of information that they're yeah. getting at, at them on a daily basis. And really, th they are, by and large, so much more emotionally mature and savvy and engaged than I was at that age. I mean, I, I really think they're, I mean, it, it's difficult for me to give any life advice to them when I actually kind of marvel at how much they have been able to not just overcome, but how much they've been able to, or how they've been able to engage so deeply at such a young age. But I do think that having said that, there's this confusion, you know, as progressive and creative and uh, out of the box and coloring outside the lines as they all are in mm -hmm. their musical lives, in their creative mm -hmm. lives. They have an incredibly conventional, if not old fashioned, if not obsolete idea about what a career is. <laughs> uh, it's strange. It's as though like the people they really are kind of quite open-minded and progressive. But when you start talking about the career itself, the career. They become very um, reductive about it all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't even know. I mean, I, I think of this more as a calling or a vocation. I mean, I don't even know exactly what a career is per se. And so I, I think that, um, you know, what I would say is that I would hope that they would begin to embrace a broader concept of what it means to live a life in vocal music and that 
I think that if they were to do that, you know, some of them would be drawn to the experiences that are truly life-giving for them. I think a lot of my students are in the, um, what I call the checklist mode of at the end of every week, they go through the checklist yep. of everyone in them <laughs> that week. And, you know, yep. it's interesting that, you know, as, as much as having absolutely no information about what you're doing is very, very damaging to your mm -hmm. classes, right? Yeah. Um, I, I almost think that having too many opinions, having too much information, too much assessment might be equally as damaging, might even kind of cancel it out, kind of multiplication by zero kind of, kind of way, yeah. but it just doesn't yeah, I, th I think that understanding how to take assessment and understanding how to have these dialogues that we have and taking the information you're given and using it to deepen your own process is something that does elude many of my most well-meaning students and like many of my most engaged and gifted students. It's funny you, you should say that because I definitely, I have a, a very distinct example in my mind of my my younger self when i was first learning the hermit songs mm -hmm. i was really struggling with saint Eda's vision i think i took it to every coach on staff at juilliard <laughs> who gave you a line reading of it right gave you their, their line and <laughs> it's one of those things where after that experience i didn't touch it i didn't touch it for probably a year and a half or more and i said nope too many opinions I couldn't parse through or figure out a way to reconcile everything that everyone had told me when at the end of the day I it didn't even occur to me that I could have my own thoughts about the music in and of itself and I was like no but I have to find a way to reconcile what all these coaches have told me and it will be perfect but I I think that that's a very real struggle for a lot of people where and as as a teacher myself, I know you know we give our opinions so that we can try to help people onto the right pathway of their of their own independent thinking. Right. But at the same time, as a student, I also recognize you want to you want to do what's right, and you want to you right. want your teacher to be proud of you or your coach to be proud of you. But it's very scary to take those risks as a young person and to be so opinionated about the performance of whatever it is that you're doing. And that was something again, to throw all the compliments at you, something that I respected so much about you, even as a young person, I recognize this about you, is that you, you always did just like what you wanted. And you said what was important and you said what was necessary. And it was always right. And that was, I think, one of the reasons why I was always drawn to working with you is that you had very strong opinions and you had ways of communicating and performing and playing and making music that were I guess, for lack of a better term, unapologetic and very you. And that was something I respected so much about you because I had never in, in anyone my age seen that kind of um, determination and something that was that was very inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, if JJ can make his music this way, I can do that too. <laughs> I mean, I think that we, we all hope that it becomes uh, experiential and a kind of experience sharing and that I mean I can only be relevant to somebody's process at the point where my experience matches theirs not that my experience has to be theirs 
in the best work, there is that sense that you're almost kinesthetically taking something from the teacher's experience and allowing it to become part of your own experience. Again, as opposed to making a cognitive checklist. Sure. Which is relatively easy to do in a certain way. You talk about these teachers like Margot and Martin, like, of course, they're music teachers, but they're really finding some way to channel the particular needs of that person at the time without explicitly saying, I'm channeling your needs and this is what you need. (laughs) It never comes across that way. It comes across just as though they're able to connect to something so essential in that Mm -hmm. person's process. I mean, you feel as though you're the only person the person has ever taught Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way. And that is the beauty of such great teachers too, is they they do find that way to meet you. Right. Exactly where you are, but also find the kindest and most helpful way to sort of drag you along. <laughs> right. Yeah. And since we're talking about about students and um, sort of open-minded creativity and progress and all of that, um, something we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we when we well, gosh, that was probably over a month ago now. Woof! Time flies when you're having fun. Um, <laughs> Time has no meaning anymore. It has no meaning. No. I, I'm telling everyone that 2020 is a lost year. People ask me, what'd you do in 2020? And I'm like, I don't know. I yeah. truly don't know. <laughs> um, but since we're talking about sort of open-minded creativity and the willingness of young people to sort of see, well, really, I think a lot of people are being forced to reckon with whether they're open to it or not, new worldviews, especially now. And so one of the things that we talked about, however, however long ago it was when I last talked, to you um, is this idea of programming and creative programming and not this idea of, you know, being boxed into having to cover all the major languages and 400 years of music history over the course of a recital. I'm sure you've seen this in your students. There's probably, I only say this because of what I know about myself, but there's this really intense desire in me to break those bonds of I have to perform X, Y, and Z thing in order to meet X, Y, and Z criteria in order to pass to get my degree. So what has been your experience or um, how have you helped push the agenda of creative, innovative programming, Mm. whether that's, you know, just assigning people repertoire or actually helping curate concerts or the things that you work on yourself? Um, yeah, I definitely do a, a little bit of all of the above of those mm-hmm. things. I curate several concerts a year um, that are kind of of my own devising, and I help countless students, you know, find their own programs, etc. I think that I, I always start off with the idea that we're living in a time of, of the personal narrative. Hopefully yeah. we always will be living in a time of the personal narrative, stories, personal stories, experience, um, creating platforms for personal experience, experiencing and re-experiencing the power that language has, or what the nature of telling is, even, Mm -hmm. you know, constantly questioning and re-questioning the nature of telling. I feel like I start from that just as a general idea, and um, what in the field of music could be closer to the personal narrative than what we do And um, after that, I have to say it does become a very personal conversation that's particular to whatever the project is. Last year, I programmed the 
I say almost complete songs of Samuel Barber. I just want to say complete songs of Samuel Barber. <laughs> we left out a couple of the unpublished songs, so I want to be precise. You can but... say the complete songs of Samuel Barber minus a couple. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Over two concerts. Right now, I'm getting ready to present a concert called The Black Pierrot that's um, mixing Langston Hughes' early poems um, using the Pierrot figure uh, with Paul Verlaine's Fête Galante, which also masks and masquerading. And so mm-hmm. it's, all, it's all Hughes and Verlaine mm-hmm. each other for mm-hmm. a program. I'm engaged right now with a, um, a program that is um, New York and Paris in the late part of the 20th century, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to incorporate readings as well. Uh, so I think that I don't have a prescriptive or didactic idea about what a song recital should be or a prescriptive didactic idea about recital programming. I, I try to get to the heart of what what the, what the artist um, wants to say and where they feel comfortable, where they feel uncomfortable, where they where they want to explore, really see what surfaces from that. I certainly have had sort of you know dream programs in mind that I curated and 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 um, ended up you know seeing to through to a performance, but I, th- I think I'm more interested in seeing seeing how a, a singer's artistry intersects with the stories that are on the page Mm -hmm. exploring that tension it's funny it's hard it's always been very difficult for me to think on a broad scale as though you know like what what am i doing for song programming in the 21st (laughs) very difficult thing for me to yeah I'm, i'm really much more of a um an hour to hour type of person who just like concentrates on the dailiness of something sure and just um kind of keeps interrogating what that is i like you like so many people i mean i'm constantly seeing what's on the shelves in the store and taking stock of the inventory and yeah sure it's diverse and making sure that it's speaking to the community and making sure that it has a social consciousness to it but again, even that is is occurring much more in individual projects with individual people, kind of mm-hmm. as as we as we go about curating them. Well, and this this kind of leads into my next question really beautifully. Is you know we've seen over the last year now that we've been in the midst of this very very terrible pandemic, there has been such a wide variety of art mm-hmm. created and. Everyone I've talked to falls into kind of one camp or the other in terms of like, I feel very obligated and ready to respond to this moment. And then there are a lot of people who just say, I have nothing left to give right now. And I myself have flip-flopped between both of those camps over the Mm -hmm. last year. What for you has been your experience making music, making art, collaborating throughout the pandemic. And in addition to that, and this is a a twofold question here, do you see us, the collective we as pianists, singers, coaches, collaborating duos and chamber music, et cetera, do you see us as having an obligation to evolve our performance medium to meet the challenges of what we have now and if we do have an obligation to evolve 
will we ever turn back to what it was before mm. a year ago? I think that aside from the very real heartache that is just going on on every level of our profession right now, I think that there have been enormous inroads made in terms of creating new platforms and new ways of presenting material. And I think that uh, we don't know yet what that's going to look like. You know? Unfortunately, I think you're right. <laughs> I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I think that certainly this creative wellspring that's happened throughout our industry in the last couple of months will certainly gain, even gain momentum, right? When mm -hmm. we're back theaters. I mean, this is an acoustical art form. I tell my students, I, I can't wait to hear the first floated high note. Come to think of it, I, I just can't wait to hear a really soft dynamic again. Yeah. It's an acoustical art form. I mean, we, we, we go into these theaters to experience an unamplified voice, an instrument that is wood and string. And that's probably one of the reasons why we chose this art mm -hmm. form. That isn't going anywhere. That just need to be in a in the theater itself. But for the rest of it, you know, we don't know how these innovations are going to pour over into yeah. post-COVID time. I, I know that they will, but I don't know if, for instance, there will be even more of a desire for videography and, you know, I can imagine film, of course, all of these extraordinary sort of film hybrid projects that I've seen. I can't imagine that that will not also become a very viable um, new facet to our mm -hmm. industry. But I'm quite sure that we will not lose the hunger to want to hear Claria dans le ciel, could even sit in a hall listening to a singer and a pianist sing a 30-minute song cycle. I, I just think we, we won't ever lose that. I hope not. <laughs> I have all these um, flashbacks to standing to where like I could smell the cologne of the stranger next to me. And <laughs> All venues in Upper Manhattan, listening to George Crumb's apparition. I mean, I have all yeah. these memory, like flashbacks to these all these claustrophobic experiences being in these small spaces. And I just think we'll be back in those rooms again. We will be. I think you're absolutely right. Thank you for reaffirming that for me. I needed to hear that today because I've been feeling a little pessimistic lately. And I don't know if you felt this, but I've talked to a few people, you know, just friends and family. But I felt like sometime in the last two to three months, and I don't think it's any coincidence, it kind of coincided with the with the election and everything. But I felt this very dramatic shift in universal energy of like, we are not going to go back to whatever normal was before the pandemic. I feel like there was a, a sort of nostalgic hope for about 10 months that said, you know, we can just get through this and we'll be able to go back to the way things were. We'll be able to go back to normal. And there was, I just felt this very sizable cosmic shift that said, you know what? No, that's not going to happen. And I think humanity as a collective whole has sort of rerouted and we're kind of on a new, tra new trajectory now. But in my conversations with people, one of the things I've been realizing is that, like you said, 
I don't think that this desire to be in a theater, to be with other people and share in a collective experience of something incredible, something extraordinary, and something beautiful right. will go away. I've talked to a lot of people who are even more pessimistic than I am about it, and they say, no, it's theater's dead, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and but the thing is is and I'm so so grateful that you said this because I was I was stuck in a bit of a rut for a while but I I do think and I hope that even though these live streamed concerts may not go away or the need to have a videographer or a recorder or yeah. um recording crew or whatever for any of these performances may not go away. I am hoping that we can get back to a time when people are able to have that collective experience again. And I think that that's something really special that we need to make sure we, the collective we, the artists, make sure that we don't lose sight of because it's we are so far removed from being able to perform live now that it's it's easy to forget. I think there are too many creative people at the top end of our profession who work in administration or, you know, work as as part of the administration for various presenting organizations. There are too many creative people for, for this to just be doomed. It, it just doesn't seem rational. I, I do think, it, you know, of course, will evolve in ways that um, are unforeseen right now. I think so. And I guess I'm a very impatient person, generally speaking. And I'm just, I'm very impatient to get to that time when right. we are able to to do that. I had a moment the other day, like, as you know, I've been working through my, my doctoral studies for, um, for my exams. And I've been spending a lot of time with Schubert, Schumann, Ravel, and Debussy in studying their works and preparation for these long essays that I have to write. And I had a moment where I was writing this essay about Debussy and Ravel, and I nearly started to cry because it reminded me of a time when I, during my master's, when I learned and performed Ravel Scheherazade. And it was one of the most rapturous musical moments of my life, being able to perform these pieces. And one of those pieces, you know, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours working on, and um, one of those deep dives. And as I was writing about Ravel and his music, and he's just a composer I love so much anyway, it was one of those moments where I was like, I don't care if it's an audience of my husband in my living room. I desperately want to perform again for someone right. and i know i am not the only one who feels that way right now you've given me you have re revived my hope that other people feel that way too <laughs> so thank you for that we, gift we crave the kinds of connections that only this can bring that only this art form can bring or only mm -hmm. the, the performing arts can bring maybe as in general no, I think you're absolutely right. Only time will tell. I'm going to go back and listen to all these podcast episodes and be like, wow, what a time to be alive. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Well, JJ, that's really all I've got for you in terms of questions and things that, you know, right. I was really hard pressed to talk to you about today. And I'm just, I'm so grateful that you took the time to just hang out with me for a little over an hour that we've been, we've been chatting and. This was so fun and easy. This has been true, like, this project for me has been such a great gift because I've been able to reconnect with people who have been really important in my life. Again, it comes back to to choosing the things that you, you have in your life, right? And it's, I'm just so grateful that you took the time and that you were willing to, to right. be here. It's been a huge treat. Also, because as a early 20-something, late teen-something, I had a healthy dose of fear and reverence for all of my teachers. <laughs> 
And so I never would have come up to you and say, I really respect you and your work. And this is so great. (laughs) But 10 years later, I can tell you that I was feeling all of those things 10 years ago, and I still feel them now. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time to talk to me and just hang out. Yeah, this has been really great. Thank you. Yeah, of Um, course. Um, There are a couple wrap up things that um, I just wanted to ask you. So first of all, you did mention that you have a commissioning project that's a couple years out. But what are some ways um, that our audience can connect with you or projects that they can listen to or websites they can go to social media they can check out? What are some of those things that um, people who are listening can can connect to you? Um, I did a a recording of um, three Britain song cycles with my friend Eric Rieger uh, a couple of years ago that we were quite proud of and it's music that just stirred us both in all the right ways and we had a fantastic world-class producer engineer so your audience can hear us hear okay me, hear us uh, is there record. is that um, is that an iTunes download thing it, is it, it available it, on Spotify it's available on all of the platforms great excellent um and uh i would say just you know follow the nec website because the what you men were doing will be mm-hmm. live streamed and recorded and s- several other projects that i'm involved with um primarily cool. nec will be so awesome well we'll be sure to include all of those things in our show notes so people know where to find those and um can interact with those things as they as they would like The last thing that I wanted to ask you, and I ask this of all of my guests, so I need just a a pithy piece of advice for the people who listen. And it can be be anything. One of the first ones I used was, don't save a pianist, don't staple your music. So um, just, you know, a piece of advice that you have for the, for the millions and millions of people who are listening to this podcast on a daily basis, you know, that has been helpful to you or helpful to your students or generally just, you know, a good pro tip to have in life. My son has a, um, one of his favorite books has as the first line, know when to speak, know when to listen, which I, it just feels very relevant and important at any stage, I think. I'm going to carry that with me for (laughs) a very long time. That's in a children's book. It's the first line of it. Yeah. Yeah kids these days. I know. Thank you so much for listening. I think it's going to be a good reminder, especially for me, to know when to listen. As I'm constantly being bombarded by screens and information, I know that's one of the first things I forget. You can catch us here every other Monday with new episodes of Song Cycle. And be sure to check us out online at cincinnatisonginitiative.org and on all the socials. Until next time, just keep singing, y'all.